Section 6 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. The Power of Conscience, the Nature of True Repentance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all of the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down, and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, and sin no more. The narrative which begins the eighth chapter of St. John's Gospel is of a rather peculiar character. In some respects it stands alone. There is nothing quite like it in the whole range of the four Gospels. In every age some scrupulous minds have stumbled at the passage and have doubted whether it was ever written by St. John at all, but the justice of such scruples is a point that cannot be easily proved. To suppose, as some have thought, that the narrative before us palliates the sin of adultery and exhibits our Lord as making light of the seventh commandment is surely a great mistake. There is nothing in the passage to justify such an assertion. There is not a sentence in it to warrant our saying anything of the kind. Let us calmly weigh the matter and examine the contents of the passage. Our Lord's enemies brought before him a woman guilty of adultery and asked him to say what punishment she deserved. We are distinctly told that they asked the question, tempting him. They hoped to entrap him into saying something for which they might accuse him. They fancy, perhaps, that he who preached pardon and salvation to publicans and harlots might be induced to say something which would either contradict the law of Moses or his own words. Our Lord knew the hearts of the malicious questioners before him, and dealt with them with perfect wisdom, as he had done in the case of the tribute money, Matthew chapter 22, verse 17. He refused to be a judge and a lawgiver among them, and especially in a case which their own law had already decided. He gave them at first no answer at all. But when they continued asking, our Lord silenced them with a withering and heart-searching reply. He that is without sin among you, he said, let him first cast a stone at her. He did not say that the woman had not sinned, or that her sin was a trifling and venal one but he reminded her accusers that they, at any rate, were not the persons to bring a charge against her. Their own motives and lives were far from pure. They themselves did not come to the case with clean hands. What they really desired was not to vindicate the purity of God's law and punish a sinner, but to wreak their malice on himself. 
Last of all, when those who had brought the unhappy woman to our Lord had gone out from his presence, convicted by their own conscience, he dismissed the guilty sinner with the solemn words, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. That she did not deserve punishment he did not say, but he had not come to be a judge. Moreover, in the absence of all witnesses or accusers, there was no case before him. Let her then depart as one whose guilt was not proven, even though she was really guilty, and let her sin no more. To say in the face of these simple facts that our Lord made light of the sin of adultery is not fair. There is nothing in the passage before us to prove it. Of all whose words are recorded in the Bible, there is none who has spoken so strongly about the breach of the seventh commandment as our divine master. It is he who has taught that it may be broken by a look or a thought as well as by an open act. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. It is he who has spoken more strongly than any about the sanctity of the marriage relation. Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. In all that is recorded here, we see nothing inconsistent with the rest of his teaching. He simply refused to usurp the office of judge and to pronounce condemnation on a guilty woman for the gratification of his deadly enemies. In leaving this passage, we must not forget that it contains two lessons of great importance. Whatever difficulties the verse before us may present, these two lessons, at any rate, are clear, plain, and unmistakable. We learn, for one thing, the power of conscience. We read of the woman's accusers that when they heard our Lord's appeal, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Wicked and hardened as they were, they felt something within which made them cowards. Fallen as human nature is, God has taken care to leave within every man a witness that will be heard. Conscience is a most important part of our inward man, and plays a most prominent part in our spiritual history. It cannot save us. It never yet led anyone to Christ. It is blind and liable to be misled. It is lame and powerless and cannot guide us to heaven. Yet conscience is not to be despised. It is the minister's best friend, when he stands up to rebuke sin from the pulpit. It is the mother's best friend, when she tries to restrain her children from evil and quicken them to good. It is the teacher's best friend, when he presses home on boys and girls their moral duties. Happy is he who never stifles his conscience, but strives to keep it tender. Still happier is he who prays to have it enlightened by the Holy Ghost and sprinkled with Christ's blood. We learned, for another thing, the nature of true repentance. When our Lord had said to the sinful woman, Neither do I condemn thee, he dismissed her with the solemn words, Go and sin no more. He did not merely say, Go home and repent. He pointed out the chief thing which her case required, the necessity of immediate breaking off from her sin. Let us never forget this lesson. It is the very essence of genuine repentance, as the Church Catechism well teaches, to forsake sin, that repentance which consists in nothing more than feeling, talking, professing, wishing, meaning, hoping, and resolving, is worthless in God's sight. Action is the very life of repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of. Till a man ceases to do evil and turns from his sins, he does not really repent. Would we know whether we are truly converted to God, and know anything of godly sorrow for sin, and repentance such as causes joy in heaven? Let us search and see whether we forsake sin. Let us not rest till we can say, as in God's sight, I hate all sin and desire to sin no more. Notes 
John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. These 11 verses, together with the last verse of the preceding chapter, form perhaps the gravest critical difficulty in the New Testament. Their genuineness is disputed. It is held by many learned Christian writers, who have an undoubted right to be heard on such matters, that the passage was not written by St. John, that it was written by an uninspired hand, and probably at a later date, and that it has no lawful claim to be regarded as part of canonical scripture. It is held by others, whose opinion, to say the least, is equally entitled to respect, that the passage is a genuine part of St. John's Gospel, and that the arguments against it, however weighty they may appear, are insufficient and admit of an answer. A summary of the whole case is all that I shall attempt to give. In the list of those who think the passage either not genuine or at least doubtful are the following names. Beza, Grotius, Baxter, Hammond, A. Clark, Titman, Tholuck, Olshausen, Hengstenberg, Tregellis, Alford, Wordsworth, and Shrivener. In the list of those who think the passage genuine are the following names. Augustine, Ambrose, Euthymius, Rupertus, Swingle, Calvin, Melcanthon, Echolampadius, Brentius, Bucer, Galter, Musculus, Bullinger, Pelican, Flacius, Diodati, Chemnitius, Eretius, Priscator, Colovius, Cosius, Tolitius, Maldonatus, Alapeda, Ferris, Nephanius, Cartwright, Mayer, Trapp, Poole, Lamp, Whitby, Lee, Doddridge, Bengal, Steer, Webster, Burgon. Calvin is sometimes named as one of those who think the passage before us is not genuine, but his language about it in his commentary is certainly not enough to bear out the assertion. He says, It is plain that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches, and some conjecture that it had been brought from some other place and inserted here, but as it has always been received by the Latin churches, and is found in many old Greek manuscripts, and contains nothing unworthy of an apostle, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. A. The arguments against the passage are as follows. 1. That it is not found in some of the oldest and best manuscripts now existing of the Greek Testament. 2. That it is not found in some of the earlier versions or translations of the scripture. 3. That it is not competent on by the Greek fathers, Origen, Cyril, Chrysostom, and Theophylact, in their exposition of St. John, nor quoted or referred to by Tertullian or Cyprian. 4. That it differs in style from the rest of St. John's Gospel, and contains several words and forms of expression which are nowhere else used in his writings. 5. That the moral tendency of the passage is somewhat doubtful, and that it seems to represent our Lord as palliating a heinous sin. b. The arguments in favor of the passage are as follows. 1. That it is found in many old manuscripts, if not in the very oldest and best. 2. That it is found in the Vulgate Latin and in the Arabic, Coptic, Persian, and Ethiopian versions. 3. That it is commented on by Augustine in his exposition of this gospel, while in another of his writings he expressly refers to it and explains its omission from some manuscripts. That it is quoted and defended by Ambrose, referred to by Jerome and treated as genuine, in the apostolical constitutions. 4. That there is no proof whatever that there is any immoral tendency in the passage. Our Lord pronounced no opinion on the sin of adultery, but simply declined the office of a judge. It may seem almost presumptuous to offer any opinion on this very difficult subject, but I venture to make the following remarks, and to invite the reader's candid attention to them. 
I lean decidedly to the side of those who think the passage is genuine for the following reasons. 1. The argument from manuscripts appears to me inconclusive. We possess comparatively few very ancient ones. Even of them, some favor the genuineness of the passage. The same remark applies to the ancient versions. Testimony of this kind, to be conclusive, should be unanimous. 2. The argument from the fathers seems to me more in favor of the passage than against it. On the one side, the reasons are simply negative. Certain fathers say nothing about the passage, but at the same time say nothing against it. On the other side, the reasons are positive. Men of such high authority as Augustine and Ambrose not only comment on the passage, but defend its genuineness and assign reasons for its omission by some mistaken transcribers. Let me add to this that the negative evidence of the fathers who are against the passage is not nearly so weighty as it appears at first sight. Cyril of Alexandria is one, but his commentary on the eighth chapter of John is lost, and what we have was supplied by the modern hand of Jodocus Tichjavius, a Parisian doctor who lived in the year 1510 A.D. Chrysostom's commentary on John consists of popular public homilies in which we can easily imagine such a passage as this might possibly be omitted. Theophylact was notoriously a copier and imitator of Chrysostom. Origen, the only remaining commentator, is one whose testimony is not of first-rate value, and he has omitted many things in his exposition of St. John. The silence of Tertullian and Cyprian is perhaps accountable on the same principle by which Augustine explains the omission of the passage in some copies of this gospel in his own time. Some, as Calovius, Maldonatus, Flacius, Aretius, and Piscator, think that Chrysostom distinctly refers to this passage in his sixth homily on John, though he passes it over in exposition. 3. The argument from alleged discrepancies between the style and writing of this passage and the usual style of St. John's writing is one which should be received with much caution. We are not dealing with an uninspired, but with an inspired writer. Surely it is not too much to say that an inspired writer may occasionally use words and constructions and modes of expression which he generally does not use, and that it is no proof that he did not write a passage because he wrote it in a peculiar way. I leave the subject here. In cases of doubt like this, it is wise to be on the safe side. On the whole, I think it safest to regard this disputed passage as genuine. At any rate, I prefer the difficulties on this side to those on the other. The whole discussion may leave in our minds, at any rate, one comfortable thought. If, even in the case of this notoriously disputed passage, more controverted and doubted than any in the New Testament, so much can be said in its favor— how immensely strong is the foundation on which the whole volume of Scripture rests. If even against this passage the arguments of opponents are not conclusive, we have no reason to fear for the rest of the Bible. After all, there is much ground for thinking that some critical difficulties have been purposefully left by God's providence in the text of the New Testament in order to prove the faith and patience of Christian people. They serve to test the humility of those to whom intellectual difficulties are a far greater cross than either doctrinal or practical ones. To such minds it is trying but useful discipline to find occasional passages involving knots which they cannot quite untie and problems which they cannot quite solve. Of such passages, the verses before us are a striking instance. That the text of them is a hard thing, it would be wrong to deny. But I believe our duty is not to reject it hastily, but to sit still and wait. In these matters, he that believeth shall not make haste. 
The following passage from St. Augustine is worth notice. Having argued that it well becomes a Christian husband to be reconciled to his wife upon her repentance after adultery, because our Lord said, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He says, This, however, rather shocks the minds of some weak believers, or rather unbelievers and enemies of the Christian faith, insomuch that, afraid of its giving their wives impunity of sinning, they struck out of their copies of the gospel, this that our Lord did in pardoning the woman taken in adultery, as if he granted leave of sinning, when he said, Go and sin no more. Augustine, be it remembered, lived about 400 A.D. Those who wish to look further into the subject of this disputed passage will find it fully discussed by Gomarus, Bloomfield, and Wordsworth. Verse 1. Jesus went, Mount, Olives. The division of the chapter in this place is to be regretted. The last verse of the preceding chapter and the verse before us are evidently intended to be taken together. While the Pharisees and members of the council went every man to his own house, our Lord, having no home of his own, retired to the Mount of Olives, and there spent the night in the open air. In such a climate as that of Judea, there was nothing remarkable in his doing this. The Garden of Gethsemane, at the foot of the mount, would supply sufficient shelter. That this was our Lord's habitual practice, we are distinctly told in Luke chapter 21, verse 37. Lamp remarks that we never read of our Lord lodging, sleeping, or tarrying a night in Jerusalem. Verse 2. And early in the morning. This expression is worth noticing because, according to some, it explains our Lord's subsequent use of the figure, I am the light of the world. They think that it refers to the break of day or rising of the sun. He came again, temple. This means the outer courts of the temple, where it was customary for the Jews to assemble and listen to teachers of religion. In eastern countries, and in the times when there was no printing, it must be remembered, much instruction was given in this way, by open-air addresses or conversations. Thus Socrates taught at Athens. All the people came unto him. All here must mean great multitudes of the people. After all that had happened in the last three or four days, we may easily understand that our Lord's appearance would at once attract a crowd. His fame as a teacher and speaker was established. He sat down and taught. That it was common for the teachers to sit and the hearers to stand is evident from other texts. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple. Matthew chapter 26, verse 55. In the synagogues of Nazareth, when our Lord began to preach, he first gave the book to the minister and sat down. Luke chapter 4, verse 20. He sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Luke chapter 5, verse 3. We sat down and spake to the women. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Verse 3. The Scribes and Pharisees. This is the only place in St. John's Gospel where he mentions the scribes at all. He names the Pharisees twenty times, sixteen times alone, and four times in conjunction with the chief priests. This fact is thought by some to be an argument against the genuineness of the passage, but without just cause. St. Mark, in his Gospel, speaks twelve times of the Pharisees and only twice mentions the scribes in conjunction with them. Moreover, this is the only occasion recorded in St. John when a formal attempt was made to entrap our Lord by a subtle question. That being so, there may be good reason why the scribes should be mentioned, as well as the Pharisees, as principal agents in the attempt. Brought unto him a woman, etc. It seems not improbable that this attempt to ensnare our Lord was one result of his enemy's failure to apprehend him during the feast. 
defeated in their effort to meet him in argument or to apprehend him in the absence of any legal charge they tried next to entrap him into committing himself in some way and so giving them a handle against him no time was to be lost they had failed yesterday and found their own officers unwilling to apprehend our lord they resolved to try another plan to-day they would ensnare our lord into doing something illegal or indiscreet and then get an advantage over him set her in the midst this means in the middle of a ring or circle composed of themselves and their followers our lord and his disciples and the crowd listening to his teaching verse four they say this woman taken etc it throws some light on this charge to remember what immense crowds came up to jerusalem at the great public feasts and especially at the feast of tabernacles at such a season when every house was crowded as at fair time when many consequently slept in the open air and no small disorder probably ensued we can well understand that such a sin as a breach of the seventh commandment would be very likely to be committed verse five now moses law commanded stoned this is the legitimate conclusion of the two texts leviticus chapter twenty verse ten and deuteronomy chapter twenty two verse twenty two when compared there seems no ground for the comment of some writers that moses did not command an adulteress to be put to death by stoning it is worth notice that the expression moses in the law is not used either by matthew mark or luke but it is used by st john both here and at chapter one verse forty five but what sayest thou this would be more literally rendered what therefore sayest thou the greek word rendered but by our translators is hardly ever so rendered in the new testament and in most places is either therefore then so now or and john chapter nine verse eighteen and acts chapter twenty five verse four are the only parallel cases echolampadius thinks the pharisees were especially sore and irritated because our lord had said that publicans and harlots would enter the kingdom of god before pharisees matthew chapter twenty one verse thirty one verse six they said this tempting accuse him in what did this temptation consist how did the jews hope to find ground for an accusation the answer seems easy if our lord replied that the woman ought not to be stoned they would have denounced him to the people as one that poured contempt on the law if our lord on the contrary replied that the woman ought to be stoned they would have accused him to the romans as one who usurped the prerogative of putting criminals to death see john chapter eighteen verse thirty one it is not lawful for us to put any man to death moreover they would have published everywhere our lord's inconsistency in offering salvation to publicans and harlots and yet condemning to death an adulteress for one transgression let it be noticed that subtle ensnaring questions like these putting the person questioned into an apparent dilemma or difficulty whatever answer he might give seem to have been favorite weapons of the jews the pharisees question about tribute money the lawyers question about the great commandment of the law and the sadducees question about the resurrection are parallel cases the question before us is therefore quite in keeping with other places in the gospels augustine remarks they said in themselves let us put before him a woman caught in adultery let us ask what is ordered in the law concerning her if he shall bid stone her he will not have the repute of gentleness if he give sentence to let her go he will not keep righteousness euthymius says the same but jesus stooped down etc etc our lord's intention in this remarkable sentence can hardly admit of doubt 
He declined to answer the subtle question put to him, partly because he knew the malicious motive of the questioners, partly because he had always announced that he did not come to be a judge and divider among men, or to interfere in the slightest degree with the administration of the law. His silence was equivalent to a refusal to answer. But the peculiar action that our Lord employed in writing with his finger on the ground is undeniably a difficulty. St. John gives no explanation of the action, and we are left to conjecture both why our Lord wrote and what he wrote. 1. Some think, as Bede, Rupertus, and Lamp, that our Lord wrote on the ground the text of Scripture which settled the question brought before him as the seventh commandment and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. The action would then imply, why do you ask me? What is written in the law? That law which God wrote with his own finger, as I am writing now. 2. Some think, as Lightfoot and Bergon, that our Lord meant to refer to the law of Moses for the trial of jealousy, in which an accused woman was obliged to drink water into which dust from the floor of the tabernacle or temple had been put by the priest. Numbers chapter 5 verse 17. The action would then imply, has the law for trying such a one as this been tried? Look at the dust on which I am writing. Has the woman been placed before the priest and drank the dust and water? 3. Some think, as Augustine, Melacton, Brentius, Toletus, and Alipada, that our Lord's action was a silent reference to the text, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, They that depart from me shall be written in the earth. 4. One rationalist writer suggests that our Lord stooped down from feelings of modesty, as if ashamed of the sight before him, and of the story told to him. The idea is preposterous and entirely out of harmony with our Lord's public demeanor. 5. Some think, as Euthymius, Calvin, Rollock, Chemnitius, Diodati, Flavius, Piscator, Grotius, Poole, and Hutchinson, that our Lord did not mean anything at all by this writing on the ground, and that he only signified that he would give no answer, and would neither listen to nor interfere in such matters as the one brought before him. Calvin remarks, Christ intended, by doing nothing, to show how unworthy they were of being heard, just as if any one, while another was speaking to him, were to draw lines on the wall, or to turn his back, or to show by any other sign that he was not attending to what was said. I must leave the reader to choose the solution he prefers. To my eyes, I confess there are difficulties in each view. If I must select one, I prefer the last of the five as the simplest. Quisnell remarks, We never read that Jesus Christ wrote, but once in his life. Let men learn from hence never to write, but when it is necessary or useful, and to do it with humility and modesty, on a principle of charity and not of malice. Verse 7. So when they continued, lifted, said unto them, the scribes and Pharisees seem to have been determined to have an answer, and to have made it necessary for our Lord to speak at last. But his first silence and significant refusal to attend were a plain proof to all around that he did not wish to interfere with the office of the magistrate, and had not come to be a judge of offenses against the law. If they got an opinion from him about this case, they could not say that he gave it willingly, but that it was extorted from him by much importunity. He that is without sin, first cast a stone at her. This solemn and weighty sentence is a striking example of our Lord's perfect wisdom. He referred his questioners to Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. 
the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death. It sent their minds home to their own private lives. Whatever the woman may deserve, are you the people to find fault with her? It neither condemned nor justified the adulteress, and yet showed our Lord's reverence for the law of Moses. I decline to pronounce sentence on this woman because I am not the judge. You know yourselves what the law is, in such cases as well as I do. You have no right to assume that I do not reverence the law as much as you yourselves. But since you profess to honor the law of Moses so much, I remind you that this same law requires the witnesses to be the executioners. Now are you the persons who ought to punish this woman, however guilty she may be? Do you yourselves come before me with a clear conscience about the seventh commandment? Many think that when our Lord said, He that is without sin, he meant the expression to be taken in a general sense. I cannot hold this view. It would involve the awkward conclusion that no one could be a judge at all, or punish a criminal because no one is altogether and absolutely without sin. I am decidedly of the opinion that our Lord referred to sin against the seventh commandment. There is too much reason to think that such sin was very common among the Jews in our Lord's time. The expression, an adulterous generation, Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, chapter 16, verse 4, and Mark chapter 8, verse 38, is full of meaning. See also Romans chapter 2, verse 22, Luke chapter 18, verse 11, and James chapter 4, verse 4. Verse 8, And again he stooped down, etc. This repeated act would greatly add to the weighty solemnity of the sentence which had just fallen from our Lord's lips. I have given my opinion. Now what are you going to do? I wait for your reply. Verse 9. And they which heard, conscience. This sentence seems to me to confirm the opinion that when our Lord said, He that is without sin, he referred to the sin against the seventh commandment. A general charge would hardly have produced the effect here described. A charge of breaking the seventh commandment would be just such a one as a man would shrink from if made publicly. The sin is peculiarly one which brings with it afterwards a certain sense of shame. It is commonly a deed of darkness and done in secret, and the doer of it dreads the light. The power of conscience stands out here in a very striking manner. It is a part of man's inward nature which is far too little remembered by ministers and teachers. Fallen and corrupt as man is, we must never forget that God has left him a certain sense of right and wrong called conscience. It has no power to save, or convert, or lead to Christ, but it has a power to accuse and prick and witness. Such texts as Romans chapter 2 verse 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 should be carefully considered. Went out, beginning, eldest, last. The words eldest and last in this sentence are in the plural number, which does not appear in the English version. The oldest would probably have the greatest number of sins on their minds. Jesus was left alone, and the woman midst. This must, of course, mean that the scribes and Pharisees who accused the woman were all gone away. It does not necessarily follow that the crowd of hearers, who were about our Lord when the case was brought to him, had gone away. They must have stood by and seen and heard all that passed. Verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself, etc. How long the pause must have been during which our Lord stooped down and wrote on the ground a second time, we are not told. But it must probably have been several minutes. When it says that our Lord saw no one but the woman, it must mean none of the party which came and interrupted his teaching, except the woman. The accusers had disappeared, and the accused alone remained. 
The question that our Lord put to the woman must have been for the satisfaction of the crowd around. Let them mark from the question and answer that the case had fallen to the ground. No evidence was offered. No accuser appeared. No sentence, therefore, could be pronounced, and none was needed. Verse 11. She said, No man, Lord. We may observe here that our Lord, with merciful consideration, did not ask the woman whether she was guilty or not. Thus she could with truth reply to his question, and yet not criminate herself. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn. Sin no more. The mingled kindness and perfect wisdom of this sentence deserve special notice. Our Lord says nothing of the question whether the woman deserved punishment, and of what kind of punishment. He simply says, I do not condemn thee. It is not my province or offense to judge or pronounce any sentence. Nor yet does he tell the woman that she may go away without stain or blemish on her character. On the contrary, he implies that she had sinned and was guilty, but in the absence of witnesses she might go away clear of punishment. Nor yet does he say, go in peace, as in Luke chapter 7 verse 50 and chapter 8 verse 48. Go, he says, and sin no more. How anyone in the face of this text can say that our Lord palliates and condones the woman's sin is rather hard to understand. That he refused to condemn her is clear and plain because it was not his office. That he ignored or connived at her sin, as Hengstenberger says, in argument against the genuineness of the whole passage, can never be proved. The very last words show what he thought of her case. Sin no more. She had sinned and had only escaped from lack of evidence. Let her remember that, and sin no more. Augustine remarks, How, Lord, dost thou then favor sin? Not so, assuredly. Mark what he says. Go, henceforth, sin no more. You see, then, that the Lord condemned, but he condemned sin, not man. For were he a favorer of sin, he would say, Neither will I condemn thee. Go, live as thou wilt. The remark of Euthymius that our Lord considered the public shame and exposure sufficient punishment for the woman's sin is thoroughly unsatisfactory and not warranted by anything in the context. The view of Bullinger and some others that one principal object of the passage is to teach our Lord's mercy and readiness to pardon great sinners appears to me quite destitute of the foundation. Christ's abounding mercy is a great truth, but not the truth of this passage. There seems no parallel between this woman and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Poole observes that our Lord does not merely say, Commit adultery no more. No partial repentance or sorrow for any particular sin will suffice a penitent that hopes for mercy from God, but a leaving off of all sin, of what kind soever it is. End of section 6